So today we are starting our study in 2 Thessalonians. It is not a standalone study. We've done 1 Thessalonians first. And you remember that kind of the theme of 1 Thessalonians is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18 is that main rapture passage. And you remember that at the end of all five chapters that there's a reference to the second coming of Christ. He does that either by a prayer or giving them a blessing that at his coming they would be able to, you know, whatever his blessing is. But he references them all. Second Thessalonians is similar. It's written only a few months after First Thessalonians. And at the end of each chapter, there's only three chapters. At the end of each chapter, he closes with a prayer, a prayer for them to be able to apply what he's been talking to them about. He wants to talk to them about the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties that they have faced since they have become a church. The church in Thessalonica was a Roman church. It was about 200,000 people during the days of Paul. It was mostly Gentile. It had a smaller Jewish community that was there. When Paul preached, he was only there for three weeks. There were a lot of Gentiles that got saved. There was a handful of Jews or, or some Jews that got saved as well. So the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Judaism was a sanctioned religion by the Roman Empire. Christianity was not, which meant that you were believing something that they considered not to be legit. And so there was a lot of persecution. Many of them had been killed for their faith. They had, their children were, were being persecuted. Their wives were being persecuted. And so they were facing this tribulation and this difficulty. And then Paul hears that there's been a false letter sent out to them. This is in the second chapter by his name. Somebody hijacked his name and sent him a letter telling them that the, the tribulation was, was happening, that they were in the tribulation and they believed him. And so Paul wants to set the record straight. The main theme of 2 Thessalonians is the return of Jesus. The main theme of 1 Thessalonians was the rapture of the church. Now we go to seven years later when Jesus returns and the title of this message is The Glorious Return of Jesus. We want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about when Jesus will return and the fact that we are going to return with him. This is a corrective letter. It's not, he, he, he's, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't come down on them at all, but he does correct them. In fact, if anything, he commends them. He talks to them about what a great church they are, their faith, their love, the same thing he did in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, he does again in 2 Thessalonians. And, and here's just some, some uh, I want to briefly take a look at the city of Thessalonica. It is in modern day, northern Greece. You could visit it today. The city is now called Thessalonica or Salonica. It has about 300,000 today, about 200,000 in the day of Paul. It is made up, uh, it, it was made up mostly of Gentiles and a relatively large, compared to other cities, Jewish group, uh, Jewish community. The church was established by Paul after visiting for just three weeks, which is really a sign of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever been involved in a church startup, if you've ever gone out to help start a church, then you know it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of plowing up ground to get a church to start. And Paul started this one here within three weeks, which is a work of the Holy Spirit. You can read about it in Acts 17 and 18 if you want to go and read about how the church was planted. And I would suggest doing that just as a separate reading. 
while you're looking at it. You can see their persecution there. You can see the trouble of a guy by the name of Jason. I won't tell you too much because I want to encourage you to go and read it. Um, they had a misunderstanding about the resurrection, about the rapture, and about the return of Jesus. Both of these are covered in both of these books. Paul wrote his letter, his first letter to them, in 52 or 53 from Corinth. Paul had gone to Thessalonica. He had gone from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, over to Thessalonica, down to Berea, which are both in northern Greece, down to Athens, from Athens to Corinth, which is in southern Greece. And from there, he established a church. And he stayed there almost as long as he stayed in Ephesus. And while he was there, he wanted to leave. He was getting worried that people were going to arrest him. There was going to be some kind of a problem in Corinth. And the Bible says, and the Lord Jesus stood by him and encouraged him to stay in Corinth. And Paul did. And he established a large and, and strong church that needed a lot of help in the future um, there in Corinth. And he wrote the letters to Thessalonians, both of them, from Corinth. This one was written just a few months after the first one, which means that they were both written sometime during 52 or 53, which makes them the earliest letters in the New Testament that were written. Before Matthew, before Mark uh, was ever compiled, Paul wrote these. This is really important because we see in these books the theme of the gospel because there's some who claim that the theme of the gospel and of the second coming of Jesus Christ and his resurrection were all done later on. But we see them here. And since they're the earliest books that are written, and by the way, theologians largely agree on this. There may be an outlier, but theologians largely agree that these books were written by Paul and they were written very early. And that helps us to understand that the gospel was established really, really early. This is, again, within 20 years of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was crucified sometime in the early 30s. This is the early 50s. So we have the gospel going all the way through Asia Minor on its first missionary journey. Paul is now on his second missionary journey. And the gospel is taking root and expanding and really moving on. Um, now, there's four things that we find in this book. First of all, the, uh, this is in, excuse me, in this chapter. There's four things we find in this chapter. The first one is in verses 1 through 4, and it's the, Thessalon uh, the Thessalonians are encouraged in their difficulties. That's the first thing Paul does. He wants to encourage them in their difficulties because they're really going through it. The second thing that he does is in verses 5 through 8, and he says, God will repay those who trouble them when he returns. When Jesus returns, he's going to take vengeance on those who are troubling them. It's a powerful passage, but it's also a passage that people don't like, that God is a God of vengeance, that God is a God who judges, that God is a jealous God. All of these are topics that people try to rewrite and, and to remake God in their image. But we don't want to do that. We want to follow the God of the Bible. We want to know who God is. If you're going to really follow God, then you've got to know who he is. And I think that's one of the reasons we, we, we tamp down the judgment of God, the vengeance of God. We tamp down his return, coming to make war when he returns on those who are rebellious upon the earth, on those who won't follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we tamp that down so much, people say things like, I don't know why, I don't know why anybody would be afraid of God. What is the, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm not afraid of God. It's because we've kind of remade God in our image or we've remade God to be more palatable to the world. 
We're receiving some pushback from the world about the way the Bible tells us God is. And so we tamp that down some and we end up making God into just some kind of passive. Um, God is all love, loving. God is all good. God is gracious. Those are all true about God. But God also is justice or he, he, his justice must be satisfied. The wrath of God is upon people. We looked at this verse last weekend. The wrath of God is upon people. And we get the idea that God has to fit into our culture. That's happening more and more. Churches are making God fit into our culture. There are all kinds of things now that have to be changed, right? There, there's all kinds of episodes. I, I, was, I was reading an article on this last week. There's episodes of um, Friends, of Seinfeld, um, and a couple other shows that I, I never really watched. That, that have pulled episodes because our culture today finds them distasteful, but in the day they were made, they weren't distasteful. And so they're pulling it to try to fit into our culture. And people find themselves scrambling to try to fit into our culture today. And our culture is radically changing. And so I think people are trying to remake God to fit into this culture. And I would just warn you against that. Don't do that. Don't try to defend God. If someone doesn't like the fact that God's going to judge this world or that God's going to come and take vengeance on those who persecuted, like the Church of the Thessalonica or maybe other persecutions that may be going on in different parts of the world today, like Afghanistan or Iran, two places where there's really strong persecution against Christians, hey, don't defend God. God doesn't need to be defended. Uh, uh, it was Charles Spurgeon who said, when someone asked him, how do you defend God? Charles Spurgeon said, I defend him the same way I defend a lion. I open the door to the cage. There's no reason to defend God if God is really true and God is really who the Bible says he is. And we've got to make sure that we're following him correctly. So I got a little ahead in my study, but there you go. God will repay um, uh, those who trouble them at his return. Uh, the third thing that we see here is that he will punish with an everlasting punishment. That's verses 8 through 10. From the presence of God. When he comes to punish them, it's an everlasting punishment and he punishes them from his presence, from his glory and from his power, which would be a tragedy. The fourth thing we see is this prayer for their worthy living, that the day that they're living in, they would live their lives worthy. And quite frankly, I think it's a prayer. We ought to be praying for the church on a regular basis that we would live worthy because there's so much out there that can lead us astray, that can get us thinking wrong that we can kind of head down the road. Sin is so deceptive, the Bible says. It warns us against the deceptiveness of sin. And people can head down the wrong road and start thinking about things wrongly. So with those four things in mind, let's pick it up in verse 1. And the first thing that we're going to do is see Paul encourage them about the difficulties they face. So Paul says, it says, Paul, the verse 1, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy. So this letter comes from those three. We know who Paul is. Savannah is Silas. So on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas make the journey. And if you look on a map, they do kind of a small, short swing through what is modern-day Turkey. They come from Antioch, which is right underneath where Turkey is, and they make a small swing through it. Then they want to go to their second missionary journey. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. John Mark started with them on the first journey and then bailed out. He wanted to go home and be with Mama. And so he left or whatever his reason was. And Paul didn't want to take him. Paul was like, if he can't stick with us, then he can't go with us. 
He's already proven he's not going to be faithful. He can't go. And Barnabas is like, let's give him another chance. Barnabas is the encourager, right? Let's give him another try. The division between them became so sharp that Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas and they went on their second missionary journey. And we don't really read any more about Barnabas. We do read later on in, I think it's 1 Timothy, might be second, but Paul says, send me John Mark for he is an encouragement to me. So, so through the time, there is this renewal of the friendship and the respect that, that Paul has for John Mark. But this is why Silas is with them on the second missionary journey. And as they make their way up into uh, what is modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor then, they come to Derby and Lystra, which are two cities, and there they meet Timothy. Timothy's father is Greek and his mother is Jewish. And Timothy gets saved and becomes a traveling companion with Paul. And, the, and, and both of these are with them when Paul starts this church in Thessalonica. So he says, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking to those who are genuine. And this tells us that this church plant was a genuine church plant, that they were in God the Father and they were in the Lord Jesus Christ. He then gives them the standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, peace is the Jewish, uh, is the Jewish greeting. You say shalom when you meet someone, when you say goodbye to them. You say shalom. Well, grace is the word that Greeks would say to greet each other and say goodbye. They would use the Greek word for grace. And to them, it meant may the gods look upon you favorably. To the Greeks, that's what it meant. May the gods look upon you favorably. Obviously, Paul co-opted it and made it may God look upon you favorably. May God give you what we think of grace, undeserved favor, right? So may God look upon you favorably and may God give you peace. That's Paul's greeting. And it speaks to the fact that all around, wherever churches were planted, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. They were part of the same church together. It says, grace and peace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly. So you've got a Bible in front of you, circle or underline that word faith. Your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds. You can underline the word love. You also can underline exceedingly and abound if you want to. We'll talk about both of those. He says, um, and because your faith grows exceedingly and your love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience. There's another word to underline. Faith, love, patience, and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So he says three things in encouraging them. This is just an encouraging, a great encouraging start. He wants to encourage them because of their faith, first of all, that, that is growing exceedingly. From the time that Paul had been there, their trust in God and their faith. Faith is used to speak of uh, believing what God says, trusting what he says. It's also used to speak of the faith. If you're a genuine Christian, you are of the faith in the Bible. Here he's talking about their faith, their trusting, their believing in God growing exceedingly. 
That only happens, Romans 10.10 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we read the word of God and we do what it says, then we grow in our faith. I heard someone say one time, the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's why I put a tape recorder with the word of God playing in my baby's crib because I'm growing their faith. That, that's not what it means. That's not, it means that you are like you're here now and you're hearing God's word. And as you're hearing God's word, you want to you want to be obedient to what you're hearing. You want your faith to grow exceedingly. So you want to read God's word. You want to study it so that your faith can grow. The more you study God's word, the more you are familiar with it. The more you memorize it, the more you study it, the more you read it, the more your faith is going to grow as you are obedient to it. It's possible to hear and not do. The Bible warns us against that. But faith grows exceedingly and they loved the word of God. They were obedient to it. And so their faith grew exceedingly. Then it says, and the love of everyone of you all abounds towards each other. This church was a loving church. The Bible tells us that they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. There's supposed to be this great love among us. Because when someone who doesn't know the Lord comes into a church, one of the things that they see that's genuine is a genuine love towards each other. Now, it can't be, it can't be pretending. It doesn't work. If you've ever been to a church where people pretend, where they walk around with big grins on their face, hello, brother, hello, sister. It's like, this is cheesy and we know it's put on. But genuine love towards one another genuinely loving one another, develop relationships, getting to know one another, being there for one another is also extremely important. The Old Testament had said, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So that's really easy for all of us to do. It's a good guideline. I know I want to treat people on the road the way I want to be treated. It just helps me. I, I think about, you know, I, I just on, on, every, on every level. If I'm in a bathroom, I want to leave the bathroom. If I'm in a public bathroom, I want to leave it the way that I would like to find it when I come in. So just all of those things are true. But the reason that works is because we're pretty, I don't know if narcissistic is the right word, but we're just in, into ourselves and the way people treat us. And so when we think, well, I got to treat people the way I would like to be treated, that works really well for us. But Jesus gave us a new command about love. He said, a new commandment I give you. Well, we were already told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this was to Jewish community. So they were all Jewish. So Jesus said, what's new about the new commandment of love? He says, this is the new commandment that I give you, that you love one another the way I loved you. Now it's no longer love people the way that you want to be loved. But now it's love people the way I love you. How does Christ love you? How much does he love you? How gracious and good and kind is he towards you? And that's how we're to be to one another. Gracious and kind. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. So even when we offend one another, God's love abounds. And so this church is the kind of church you would want to be at. Where faith was growing and where love was abounding towards each other. It's the kind of church we want. We want our church to be defined by loving people the way Christ loved us. Lord, help us to be able to do that. And so then he says that we, um, in verse four, 
so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in persecutions and tribulations that you endure. They are facing great tribulations, great persecutions. Some of them had been killed for their faith. We can just imagine what they were going through at the hands of these Romans. We know that it, this was happening during a time when there were persecutions in the church. Nero would become the emperor before too long, and he would promote um, persecutions against those who are in the church. Notice they have persecutions and they have tribulations. This is important when we talk about the rapture of the church before the tribulation, because there are people who will say, well, you just don't want tribulation. You just don't want persecutions. You just don't want difficulties. Therefore, you want to be taken out before the tribulation. Well, that's not really true. Jesus said in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said, rejoice when you are persecuted, when people, when people spitefully use you, pray for them. We know we're going to have difficulties. We know that God allows difficulties in our lives just to build character in us. And that's a good thing. God wants us to grow in our character. And so we face troubles and difficulties. God wants to do things in our lives through difficulties and, and trials. I've often said, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish it was through ease and rest and sunshine and joy <laughs> that we developed a deep character. But it's not. It's through difficulties. It's through hardships that we face them. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 about God using difficulties in our lives. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And here's the reason. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, if you had a bunch of gold, and you had a genuine faith, your genuine faith is much more precious than a bunch of gold. And that's really powerful. Genuine faith is what we want. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, this is the genuine star of faith, be, may be found to the praise, the honor, the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God wants to work inside of us and we go through persecutions and difficulties. It doesn't mean that we're going to face the wrath of God. That's a whole different thing. The tribulation period is God's indignation, God's wrath poured down upon people who dwell on the earth. And so it doesn't mean we're going to face those. We're, God's not mad at us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. We have not been destined to wrath. Romans 5, 9. We're not going to go through wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. We have been saved from the wrath that is to come. Revelation 3.10, uh, that God will keep us from the hour of testing that's coming upon the earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Doesn't mean I don't think that we're not going to have tribulations and hardships. And so we see then the second is that God will repay these who trouble them at his return. And we get to one of the passages in the Bible that help us to really, in the New Testament especially, that help us to really grasp the character of God. And as I said earlier, that yes, God's loving and gracious and kind, but God is also one who takes vengeance, one who is jealous. He's fierce, the Bible says. There's one verse in the New King James that translates that God is terrible. Not terrible in the sense like he's awful, but terrible in the sense of 
you want to make sure you got things right with this guy because he, he's, he's, he's not a tame lion, right? And so we pick this up then in verse 5. And this, as I said, this passage, all of a sudden, he just gets into some serious stuff. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteousness of God. That is your tribulation, your trials, your persecution are manifest evidence, revealed evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. So he says, hey, you're going through difficulties and trials. This is manifold evidence of the judgment of God that you might be counted worthy for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And there's the play on words. The word tribulation comes from a word for a tool that you would use to remove husk from grain. It was a board of, of some sorts with handles on it that had teeth that were implanted in the board underneath. You would lay out your, your grain on a table and then you would run the tribulum back and forth on the grain. And it was violent to the grain, but it did the job. Then you would gather together the grain and you would gather together the husk and put it off to the side. And so this is the word for trouble. And you say, well, sometimes that's what it feels like. Like somebody's taking a giant board with teeth on it and rubbing it over my life. And so he says, they've troubled you and God's going to trouble them. That's his statement. Now that right there tells us something about God. God's not afraid to judge man. God's not afraid to condemn man. And when I say condemn, I don't mean what you've done is bad and wrong. I mean, you will be punished for what you have done. And true punishment. Today, there's a debate in our culture as to whether or not you should punish criminals or reform them. That prison should be used as a reform mechanism rather than a punishment mechanism. And I don't know all about that, but what I do know is that in eternity, God's not in the business of reforming people. God's in the business of punishing people. Now, some will be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many, right? Luke chapter 12, Jesus brings that up. God's going to be fair. He's not going to treat everybody the same. And I have an issue with when churches teach on hell that quite often, when pastors teach on hell, they quite often will not make a distinction in the way that God will treat people. But the Bible clearly teaches us it will be more tolerable for some than others. And I don't know what that means. When, when death in Hades is cast into the lake of fire and everyone there is from the presence of God and there's, there's, there's eternal destruction taking place, some will be beaten with you and some will be beaten with many. Someone told me one time, you're encouraging people to be rebellious against God by telling them they're only going to be beaten with a few stripes. I don't think I am. I really don't. I think that if we talk about you being thrown into the lake of fire, you're just not going to suffer as much as people who are worse than you. People aren't going, well, bring it on. That's great. No, we go, no, we would like to not go to hell. We would like to avoid that. Even if it's not as bad as Hitler gets, right? Hitler might get one thing, you might get another, but it's not going to be good. A few stripes is bad. Many stripes is worse, right? And so he says, this is manifest evidence of the judgment of God. God's a judge and he is going to judge this earth. 
And as I said, be careful that in our culture, you don't take the judgment of God away. The Bible reveals it. People don't like that. People who are in the world. I was driving through uh, Deming, New Mexico. I was driving from Albuquerque by myself. I was coming back. My family and we were there. This is 20 years ago or so, maybe 25, maybe 30. We were in Albuquerque and I'm driving back and I get bored of country music because that's all you can get between Hatch and Deming. It's just one country station after another. And uh, so I finally stop at a talk show and it's a talk host interviewing a psychic and, and she's taking calls. And one of the persons asked her, well, since you're a psychic, then you know whether or not God exists. So does he? And the psychic said, it doesn't really work that way. That's not the way the, the gift of being a psychic works. But one thing I do know is that God is not a judge. And I thought, that's interesting. Why, why go there? One thing I know is God is not a judge because people don't like the idea of having to stand in front of a judge and to have him be totally righteous with eyes like a flaming fire that sees everything that nothing can be hidden from. Today, you can go, I take the fifth. Today, you can go talk to my lawyer. But then that day, you won't be able to because God will know everything about you. It says that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. All right, so, so here's where people use that section to say that this is evidence that the rapture of the church is post-tribulation. And here's their thinking. God's giving you rest from your tribulation when Jesus is revealed with his holy angels. He is revealed with his holy angels when he returns. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Revelation 19. I'm going to read that in a moment. So it is his, his return. But this rest here is not from the tribulation. The rest that they are going to receive is from these people that have mistreated them greatly and God taking vengeance on them. That's the rest they're going to receive. In Revelation, there are tribulation saints who are beheaded for their faith, who are killed because they're, they're Christians during the tribulation, and they are under the throne of God. Their souls are under the throne of God. Remember that? And they're saying, when are you going to judge rightly? When are you going to judge these people that did this to us? And God says, just take a little more time and I'll pass that judgment on them. They'll receive their rest when God takes vengeance on them. And so God gives them a rest when he takes vengeance on those who are treating him in such a way. He goes on to say here then, uh, verse 7 again, and to give you who are troubled rest, the, the, the rapture of the church isn't here at all. This is all the return of Jesus. When the Lord returns, re, uh, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In a flaming fire, Revelation says that when Jesus returns, his eyes are like a flame of fire. He has a flame of fire. People will talk about this flame of fire being his glory, his majesty. And although he's going to come in all of his glory, we're going to see all of his majesty and we're going to be blown away at it. I think this is talking about a fire of judgment. Like his eyes are, are, are can pierce into everything and he brings a fire of judgment with him. In a fire, because it says taking vengeance on those 
who do not know God. Now, is it true that he's going to show up in great glory and, and it's going to be ablaze his, like a fire and then he's going to take vengeance? Yes. But it's probably talking about a fire that he takes vengeance on all of those um, who do not know him. Remember, Jesus returns at the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon is drawn lines. They've taken place. They're in, the, they're in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. They're in the Valley of Jezreel. There have been many battles fought in that, in that valley. Alexander the Great fought a war in that valley. And he will return, and they will turn to fight against him, and he will destroy them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. And so this is, is God talking about troubling them who trouble them. Now listen to what the Bible says in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is the re actual return of Jesus. Look at how much it compares to 1 Thessalonians. It says in verse 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, if you go earlier in Revelation 19, you see it's the church that are given white clothes of white linen. We are following him. We return with him. It goes on to say here um, that those are following uh, with him on white horses. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed of you in that day. Which means that if we're not ashamed of him, then he won't be ashamed of us. Because right now, you might have people mock you. They may make fun of you. They may think less of you as a Christian. But that is no reason to be ashamed. You stand for Christ in the midst of all of that. They hated him. They'll hate you. They treated him poorly. They're going to treat you poorly. Stand for him in all of it. Because one day when he returns, King of kings and Lord of lords written on his thighs, riding on that white horse, eyes ablaze, we're going to go, me and Jesus, we're tight. We're together. We, we, we really know each other. It goes on to say then, um, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He will strike the nations. He will rule with truth. And he will rule with a rod of iron. There are going to be people who don't like it during the tribulation period, but there's going to be nothing that they can do. It says, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Again, this isn't a... I'm trying to think of another word besides mamby-pamsy, but that's what I'm going to go with. This isn't a mamby-pamsy God who's just like, you know, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-violence. That's not God. God sees justice in bringing violence and judgment to people. And so he treads the winepress with the fierceness of the wrath of God. Once you start seeing God that way, once you see the biblical God, the biblical Jesus, you start going, okay, now I understand why I should be afraid of him. I need to be afraid because I'm going to stand before him one day. And I may play games now, but God will see it and he'll know. 
And it says, this is the end of uh, Revelation, verse 16. And he has on a robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the third thing that we see in this chapter in verses 8 through 10 is that he will punish with everlasting fire when he returns or everlasting punishment when he returns. It says, middle of verse 8, and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the ones that receive this everlasting punishment? The ones who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. It is permanent. It's not temporary. There are those that teach universalism. Rod Bell wrote a book called God Wins, where God's just going to take you through a bunch of stuff after you die. He's going to judge you, but it's all until you come around and start believing the right way. You know, the whole idea that God's into, you know, um, kind of refurbishing people rather than just punishing. But that's not what the Bible says. They are punished with everlasting destruction. It is permanent. The Bible says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. This is the truth of what God's Word says. And they are entering this everlasting destruction. And this everlasting destruction is from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Can you imagine seeing God in all of His awesomeness, in all of His terribleness, in all of His, His, His fierceness, in all of His glory, in all of His love, in all of His joy? standing in his presence and then being cast away forever. Jesus used this picture. Away from me, I never knew you. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some are going to say, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? He's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed in his prayer, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the Son whom he sent. It's having that relationship with him and knowing him. Otherwise, you are sent from the presence. Can you imagine being sent away into the darkness because God is light and they're away from his light and power? There'll be no light. There'll be no sense of love away from him for eternity. What a horrible thing. And it says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. So we are with Jesus. And when he returns, we are glorified with him. Why? Because we're his. We're his bride. We're with him. He's coming to bring destruction upon the earth. And, and, and we're standing with him. When he comes to glorify his saints and to be admired among all of those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So now he's talking about the Thessalonians. You guys are going to be admired when you return with Jesus. Because whether they live or die, he knows that the rapture is going to take them and they're going to be in heaven for seven years. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bema seat judgment of saints, our motive is being tested by God and judged by God. And then we're going to return with him. Listen to what Colossians 3, 4 says. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ, our life, appears, we'll appear with him. We're going to be riding those white horses. We are going to be glorified together with him. And then the fourth thing that he covers in this chapter is a prayer for worthy living. He says to them, therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Hey, if all of this is true and that's who we are and we're going to return with Jesus and we're going to be glorified in him, then how are we living today? 
There are so many church leaders that are and denomination leaders that it's being discovered that there's sin in their lives. And if that's happening among the leaders, it's happening among the people as well. He says, I pray that you would live a life worthy of it. It's a prayer we need to pray for each other, that we would be worthy of the call. Therefore, I also pray always that you, that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith and power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. That combination, the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. May Jesus be glorified in us as we live that worthy lifestyle. If we're not living a worthy lifestyle, then he's not going to be glorified in us. People are going to be made to stumble because of us. But if we're living a worthy lifestyle, then God's going to be glorified in us according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's undeserved favor. Which one of us will not be riding on that horse behind him saying this is all because of God's grace? This is not because Robert Furrow was a great guy. It's not because Robert Furrow didn't have sin. It's because of the grace of God that we will be together behind him. Now, I want to close out this message by just kind of giving you an opportunity. I'm going to give you a chance here in a moment to invite Christ into your life, to be born again. Or if you've followed him before and then you walked away, a chance to be able to come back to him. And I just want to pray as I pray the closing prayer here that God would give you boldness to be able to take the next step, that you would be bold in raising your hand and saying, yes, I want to walk away from the way I'm living and walk towards Christ. If it's your first time or if you need to do that, you know you need to do it, then I want to encourage you to do that, that you may be one that lives that worthy life and stand before him who will one day take vengeance on those who mistreated the Thessalonians. And that could be extrapolated to all who have been mistreated, right? Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this chapter. It really is encouraging and powerful, meaningful. We, We pray that we would have a good understanding of your return. You are going to, one day the sky is going to part and you are going to return in all of your glory. And we look so forward to that day when we will be with you. And Lord, I do pray that we would live a worthy life. That when you come in all of your goodness and in your power, that we would be able to stand with you. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.